It's really quotable, and he's got one that I always enjoyed. It's like, during the Civil War, it's the midst of the Civil War, he was uh, reportedly asked by the media of his day, is God on his side? They wanted to know. And his reply, I think, was quite sage-like. He said, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. I thought, wow, that's a nice parallel. When we come to the scriptures, it's possible you can approach the scriptures looking for things to support what you're doing and where you're going, but that's not how we approach the scriptures here, right? The scriptures are the truth, and we want to align ourselves with the truth. We want to shape our thoughts and our behavior according to the truth, not look in the scriptures for some justification for what we are doing. Well, the last time I filled pulpit here was in early December, and we looked at a parable uh, known as the rich man and Lazarus. Today, I want to return to Luke 16 and look at the parable right before it. So we're actually moving backwards. This is the parable of the unrighteous stewards. So the rich man and Lazarus, that's at the end of Luke 16. At the beginning of Luke 16 is the unrighteous steward. Um, Jesus told the parable of the rich man and Lazarus to the Pharisees because their highly negative reaction to the parable of the unrighteous steward. Uh, Luke 16, 14 reads like this. Now, the Pharisees, who were lovers of money, were listening to all these things and were scoffing at him. They were scoffing at the parable of the unrighteous steward. That word scoffing is not a mild reaction. Literally, it means to hold up the nose in derision of. Uh, it occurs only twice in the New Testament, both by Luke here in the parable section of Luke 16 and also at the crucifixion where the rulers sneered. That's the same word. He saved others, let him save himself. Oxford Thesaurus creates a nice little word cloud for us for scoff. You'll enjoy this. Are you ready? Here we go. Mock, deride, ridicule, sneer at, be scornful about, treat contemptu contemptuously, jeer at, jibe at, make fun of, poke fun at, laugh at, scorn, laugh to scorn, dismiss, poo-poo, make light of, belittle, and informally to thumb your nose. They did not like the parable of the unrighteous steward. Uh, so, you've got the picture. Let's turn to Luke 16, 1, and let's read the parable that the Pharisees found so contemptuous. Luke 16, 1 through 13. I'm in the New American Standard. Uh, I know there's some of you who are. Most of you are probably ESV. I think you'll be able to hang with me. I'm sorry. I, I study in the New American Standard, and it's just hard to pull out of that and move into a, another translation. So if you got the ESV, you kind of get uh, two views there. That's actually not bad Bible study method, right? To read a text in two good translations is a uh, good practice, multiple good translations. Okay, here we go. Luke 16, starting in verse 1. Now, he was also saying to the disciples, there was a 
rich man who had a manager. And this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you can no longer be manager. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am ashamed to beg. I know what I shall do. So that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors and beginning, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails... They will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? And if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. Compelling, interesting passage. So let's Let's, let's commit this time in prayer. Father, as we look into your word, your true word, we just call upon your spirit to instruct us and teach us. It is his inspired word, Lord. Just pray that you would enlighten us to understand this text, to apply this text. Pray that as we hear these words, they won't go in one ear and out the other but we will take them to heart, reshape our thoughts, and walk away today differently, behaving differently, thinking differently, being more in line with what is true, with what you have taught us and directed us to do. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right. So the parable begins... Now, he was also saying to the disciples. Now, he was also saying to the disciples. So, this parable was for the disciples. The Pharisees were overhearing. The parable was actually directed to the disciples. It's, it is teaching for followers 
how to live as a follower of Christ. No surprise, the Pharisees were scoffing. They were not followers. This parable would have been foolishness to them. On a side note, this started me looking at a lot of parables. All of a sudden, I began, it's like after the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and this, I start, you know, these parables, I take them out of the context. I just remember the story, but all of them were prompted invariably by some act or action, and they all are not addressed just to one group of people. It would make an interesting study to go through. There's about 40 parables, about a third of them are about money, and just go through and catalog and categorize, classify. It's like, what prompted this story, and who was the story told to, or for whose benefit was it intended? But back to verse 1, this is a parable for the disciples, and it begins, there was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. We're not given an extended description of the rich man's wealth like we get in the rich man and Lazarus, but we have enough that we can infer he was, he was quite well off. First of all, he had a manager. I, on the other hand, do not have a manager watching over my possessions, primarily because there isn't much to watch. It's kind of a one-person job, and it's not full-time. Um, you should be chuckling harder. Uh, that's okay. You know, if you can hire someone to look after your stuff, you've got a lot of stuff. I mean, that, that, that's, that's the bottom line here. You've got some loot if you can hire somebody who spends their whole day looking after you. I worked uh, post, uh, in, in the middle of college, I was the yard boy for a fairly wealthy man. He was an oil man who then owned banks. He could afford to hire me to do nothing but mow his lawn and tend his... I was, I was the yard boy 40 hours a week. He had some loot. Okay. Uh, second, so we have a wealthy man, but just but he's got a manager. Secondly, there are a number of debtors. So more than the text gives us. The text gives us an example of two debtors, but the grammar indicates... This is just an example. This is a small sample group. There were numerous debtors involved here. And the size of their debts, when we dig into the details, they are measured in years of wages. So this man is a man of great wealth and power. What about the manager? Well, the word manager is oikonomon. Oiko, house, nomos, law. He is the law of the house. He has charge of the house. He would have managed the land, the crops, all the assets, the debts. Obviously, we know he was keeping the books, all the resources of this wealthy man, the servants. I'm thinking of Joseph and Potiphar, and he had the charge of the house. He was the head guy. Uh, Maybe not the exact parallel here, but you get the idea. He had a lot under him. He was the manager Unfortunately, this manager is immediately introduced as a problem. The text says he was reported. That's NASB. Your ESV translation gives a little better picture. The word reported sounds a little benign, like, okay, he was, someone told him. But the Greek word is diabolo. The glossary definition for diabolo is to bring charges 
usually with hostile intent. Diabolo is the root for one of our names for Satan, Diabolos, Diabolos, that is the accuser of the brethren, the slanderer. So these are heavy accusations that have been brought in. What is the manager accused of? Squandering the rich man's possessions. He's squandering the rich man's possessions. When used literally, the word translated squander means to separate specifically as in winnowing, where you blow a current of air through grain in order to remove or, think, scatter the chaff. When used figuratively, the scattered chaff gives us a picture of squandering. Think scattering. He's just wasting like chaff. He's just blowing this man's possessions. You might say he was misspending, misusing, dissipating, frittering away this man's possessions. It wasn't what he was hired to do. He was probably hired to conserve, to accumulate, and to grow the wealth. Instead, he was absolutely just blowing it. It's the same word Jesus used in the parable of the prodigal son. That's one chapter back in Luke 15. It reads like this in verse 13, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. So, you know what happens next. We've read this text just previously, right? And he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Give an accounting of your management for you to no longer be manager. This is the you're fired moment of his life. If you've ever been relieved of your job, you know high levels of pain to hear those words. And you immediately start thinking, man, what am I going to do now? Notice the manager does not protest. Doesn't say, no, no, you don't understand. There's, there's, he, he knows he's been exposed. The books, he's going to give an accounting. The accounting is apparently going to bear out the accusation, and he knows that. There's no point in making up stories. He knows he's out. And he's not just out of a job. Being the type of manager he was, he would have been a resident at the estate. So he's losing it all here. He's losing income. He's losing food. He's losing shelter. He's losing his reputation. He's losing it all. He's losing the works. What is he thinking? Well, Jesus gives us a soliloquy from the mind of the manager. Here he goes. The manager said to himself, what shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I am not strong enough to dig. I am too ashamed to beg. So clearly he sees himself as ruined as a manager. Everyone in town will know about this. No chance anyone hires me after to manage any of their business after this debacle. He immediately starts thinking of other employment. You know, think about the employment he's contemplating here. This is the absolute rock bottom of the employment world. The only two options he gives himself are digging, that's absolutely menial labor, untrained, or begging, that's even less than menial labor. I mean, that's 
nothing at all. He declared himself not physically strong enough for the one. Given the fact that he is too proud for the other, we might infer maybe he was lazy and just didn't want to spend his life digging. After spending years just squandering a rich man's wealth, uh, I'm thinking his physical training may not, yeah, he may not be strong enough. Think of the lifestyle he's used to. He's like, he is headed for some changes. He was probably this, I, I, living high on the hog. Does anybody use that phrase anymore? That was my mom's phrase, living high on the hog. That's apparently, I was told, where the better cuts of meat are. There's too many ag people here for me to say that confidently. Never raising, having raised hogs myself. Living highly, he, he, he knew how to live it up. I mean, he was, he was, he had an expense account like we will probably never know. He's going to have to, he, that's all going to be gone. It's all going to be gone. How will he ever live like that again? He's got to be feeling a little bit on the desperate side, a little bit like, boy, this is it. The gig is up until he has a little light bulb moment in verse 4. I know what I shall do so that when I am removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. This idea is so clever, so crafty. He's not going to have to dig or beg. In fact, he will be welcomed, welcomed into homes, accepted, received, welcomed into homes. I'm thinking he's like, (laughs) <laughs> no digging or begging for me. <laughs> that was my th- audition for a theater part. I think I better stick with the text. Okay. No, sir, I will be the guest of honor in every hometown. I could ha-ha better than that, but it just wasn't there. Okay. Yeah, he's, he's like, I've got it. I have got it. I, I, this is going to work out great. And you'll notice he says, when I am removed. He hasn't been removed from his job yet. This is the error of the rich man. At least, this doesn't go on in corporate America today. I had a friend who was terminated as part of a series of layoffs at one of the aircraft plants in town. And uh, how did that happen? Well, he was called from his office, given the news, and ushered to the parking lot and let him go back and pack up his office. They packed up his office for him in boxes, and he came back later the next week and picked up his boxes of stuff. Um, not so for the man, unrighteous manager. The unrighteous manager was given a window of opportunity, and he took it with gusto. His plan, absolutely audacious. I think we need a little Yiddish here. You would say chutzpah. He had He absolutely audacious and brilliant at the same time. Let's look and consider what he did. Verse 5, and he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first. Now, we've got to stop right there. That's the first key element to this plan. He summoned not one, but each one of his master's debtors. The text only gives us two, but the grammar indicates there are, these are examples, there were many more debtors. And this is a critical part of his scheme. He's 
not going to do one outrageous favor. He's going to do a whole hatful of outrageous favors. He will not have one person owing him a debt of gratitude. He's going to have the whole town owing him a debt of gratitude, or at least everybody who is indebted to his master. And you got to realize this is an honor-based culture, and in an honor-based culture, this will produce peer pressure. In an honor-based culture, the great concern is to maintain your honorable standing. If someone does you a favor, you must return that favor. You've got to reciprocate, or you are a dishonorable man. If he only helped out one of his master's debtors, that man might be able to just kind of stonewall him. Might kind of, what? I don't really know what you're talking about. But it's not going to go that way. You can't do that if the whole town knows. Everybody knows. He cut me a deal. He cut me a deal. He cut me a deal. What? He turned you out? He wouldn't help you out? He, that, that is the absolute driving force in this plan. How much was debt was he relieving here? That would be the other thing to ask. How about these debts? Verse, end of verse 5, how much do you owe my master? He asked the first person. How much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And he said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and write 50. 100 measures of oil. We all know how much that is, right? Yeah, okay, so that's, that's what we're, I was like, how much is this? How much is 100 measures of oil is about 900 to 1,000 gallons. That's a lot of oil. The production of about 150 trees in wages, about three years' wages, about three years' wages, cut in half, just like that. Take your salary, multiply it by 1.5. That's a pretty sizable amount of money, even for those of us just working at a fast food restaurant. A year and a half of full-time income. Did you notice the sit down quickly? This is an underhanded, shady deal. Just right there. Just sit down quickly. It's quickly. You know, we don't want anyone to walk in on us while we're doing this. Don't ask questions. Notice nobody asks questions. Just sit down quickly and write 50. The deal is struck, and he moves on to his next. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. Hmm, That's not as good a discount. That's just 20%. He cut the other guy's bill in half. Well, it actually works out to be a similar amount of money. A hundred measures of wheat is about a thousand bushels. In labor, about eight to 10 years, a 20% discount works out to be year and a half to two years wages, depending upon whether it's eight years of wages or 10 years of wages. So he's cutting everybody's bill, giving them a nice, sizable discount. Everybody's getting the labor of about a year and a half, maybe even two years. Now, it's interesting. Uh, the reputation of this parable is it's among the most difficult to interpret. And so far, we're just reading along picking up all the details. This doesn't sound challenging yet at all. 
But, um, you know, it, for example, there's no symbolism. You think of the parable of the sower. You have to know the sower. The seed is the word of God. The evil one is the bird that takes away the word. It's a, there's no allegory here. We're just following a story. And it's all pretty easy to understand. Uh, he, Jesus has painted an unmistakable portrait of the people of this world. This is how the world kind of tends to operate. Um, note the sons of light, not the sons of light, but a portrait of the sons of this age. That's the description, descriptive words Jesus uses to separate the believers from the unbelievers. The people of this world are constantly working to improve their position in life. The people of this world are devious, cunning, crafty, wily, sly, scheming, opportunistic, the sons of this age. The question is not for them, is this fair or right, but will I get caught? And if I get caught, what are the consequences? And can, can, I, can I handle those or, or, or should I just look the other way? They use whatever they have at their disposal to create their best life now. So we have here a portrait of the sons of this age, the people who operate according to the world's system. This is what we're seeing. Note, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are the sons of life. So you're thinking, if, I'm just, if I was just sitting there on the hillside or wherever Jesus is telling the story, and we're going along, and I'm hearing this, I'm going to think to myself, so Jesus will now condemn the unrighteous steward, and we will know never to do anything like this. Easy, clean, simple, straightforward parable. Well, not so fast. What makes the parable difficult starts here with verse 8. And his master praised the rich man, and his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of life. Immediately when I go, oh, wait a minute, this guy just got taken to the cleaners by this guy. What's going on? The rich man is praising the unrighteous manager. Well, We'll have to dive into some of the reasons why. First of all, you want to ask yourself, well, what did he praise him for? Well, he praised him because he acted shrewdly. He acted shrewdly, not because he was incompetent and wasted his possessions, not because he embezzled funds by discounting the loans to pave his way, but because he acted shrewdly. The Greek word is phronimos. It means sensibly, practically, wise. Oxford English Dictionary is more help here, or a good help here, not more, good help here, having or showing sharp powers of judgment. Astute. He made an astute move. That's what his rich man boss said. The unrighteous stewards saw how to gain the advantage and then literally cut like a knife through the details of the situation to create that advantage for himself. I can hear the rich man saying something like, wow, 
I got hit, and I did not even see that coming. I confess, that was shrewd. Uh, We have to think about this. Praise does not always have to sound like fawning over someone or something endlessly. It can sometimes be just a simple statement of fact, such as when Jesus died on the cross, Luke 23, 47. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God. Think, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace, goodwill. He began praising God, saying, certainly, this was an innocent man. I think we can understand the rich man praising the unrighteous steward in this sense. That was shrewd. I mean, you have to back up and go, that was cunning. That was sly. That was sharp. Uh, I'm thinking he's also probably wishing the unrighteous steward had been this shrewd on his behalf when he was managing his own possessions. But uh, that, uh, that, day has, that day has passed. The page has turned. The more dis- difficult part, honestly, to grasp is the next phase. Jesus says, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of life, light. Let me read that one more time. For the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons of light. They're better than the sons of light. Like, what... Is Jesus lauding the unrighteous manager? Is he holding him up as an example? What does Jesus mean by doing this? Well, there's a couple of things going on here. Jesus is using a tradition, was a traditional rabbinic model for argument discussion for teaching. It's an arguing from the lesser to the greater. If the sons of this age make shrewd use of all the wealth at their disposal in order to set up their best life now in this world, which is passing away, then the sons of light ought to be at least that thoughtful how they use their wealth in regard to their eternal future. How do we do that How do we do that? Well, verse 9, Jesus begins a set of three applications from this parable, the first of which answers this question very directly. The first application, verse 9, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. And I say to you, and I say to you, in contrast to the sons of this age, and I say to you, we see what the sons of this age are doing. You, on the other hand, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness. What kind of friends? Friends that will receive you into eternal dwellings. Invest in what proclaims the gospel and brings people to salvation. In this sense, you can buy 
friends for heaven who will be standing at the gate welcoming you when you arrive. When we invest in ministry that brings about the salvation of sinners, we have purchased friends for eternity. I had never thought about that as much or as deeply until we started having kids. And you think, you know, there's just not many things that leave this world. The word of God is, we're told, will stand forever. The souls of people will stand forever. It dawned on me that as a dad, I did not have to say goodbye ever to my children if they became children of faith. They put their faith in Christ. We would, as we sit around our living room and read the scriptures and worship, we'll be sitting around the throne someday worshiping. But we, got to, we can extend that beyond the family. Every person you bring to faith in Christ, this text tells us, will, the they there is part, the part that confused me in my first reading. This, and I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, they, who's they? The friends you've made for yourselves will receive you into eternal dwellings. That is a mind-boggling thought. Friends are going to receive you into eternal dwellings. We do this corporately as a church. We, take, we took an offering today. That offering is going to go to ministry purposes, some of it specifically to missions. My thought was, boy, we need to be praying for the missions committee because they are the handlers of our unrighteous wealth. They are on the, you might say, the front line, uh, definitely part of that decision about what missionaries will we support and to what degree will we support them. They are in the business of making eternal friends for us, uh, you might say, in one sense. But we can also make this personal. I had a friend who challenged me a little bit more directly in this manner. He had kind of interesting approach. This is a little bit uh, sideways, but, uh, well, he kept a personal budget, and he had a budget line for giving. Some went to church, some went to missionaries he supported directly, and some went to himself. I'm like, uh, what's that? Uh, for his ministry, beyond his regular giving, he had a budget line so that he would buy gospel tracts, perhaps an apologetic book for a friend who is exhibiting sort of skeptic uh, but interested uh, a mentality, hospitality to the lost, his neighbors. He might even send an unsaved neighborhood kid to church camp where they would hear the gospel. He had a budget line so that he was accumulating money and using that money specifically to spread the gospel. The thing I liked about this idea the best is when you review your budget, you have a concrete little number sitting there. Boy, I am not investing in God's work the way I had intended to. I better get busy and be on the lookout. How can I use my money? How can I use the wealth that God has given me better for the kingdom. Well, I skipped over one line in the verse that we need to go back and pick up. It says, so that when it fails. Now, you'll want to note there, it doesn't say if it fails. It just says 
when it fails. It is certain your money will fail. I take this as a reference to death, you dying, because the solution is when, for when it fails is they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. Your righteous, your unrighteous wealth is going to fail in heaven. It is no good there. You cannot take it with you. We already approached the subject last time we talked about there's with uh, the Lazarus and the rich man, purses don't pull U-Hauls, death shrouds don't have pockets. Uh, here's, your, here's your scriptural verification as though you needed it. Uh, Ecclesiastes 5.15, as he had come naked from his mother's womb, so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. 1 Timothy 6, 7, a little more succinct. We brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. You're going to leave it all behind. It exposes the folly of spending your life accumulating wealth. There was an old bumper sticker. I don't see it anymore, so I think people kind of maybe began to ask the question I ask. The old bumper sticker read something like this, he who dies with the most toys wins. Is that not the sons of this age? That is where they are living. And I, I mean, wins what? You know, you're not taking any of this with you. But that's the mindset of the sons of this age, portrayed aptly in this parable by the unrighteous manager. He is conniving, working, scheming, how I, I don't want to dig, I don't want to beg, what can I do to set up my life going forward? And it's not his eternal life, it is my best life now, focused on this life. You can't get any plainer than Matthew 6, 19 and 20. This is the absolute death knell to accumulation. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. This parable is just an absolute clear answer about one way to go about doing that. As the sons of this age are diligent, shrewd, ingenious in securing their best life that they can manufacture in this temporary world, so the sons of light should be investing in the proclamation of the gospel and securing for themselves eternal friends. So the first application, we should use our wealth to win people into the kingdom, and we should be as shrewd and diligent at it as the sons of this age are at pursuing their security in this life. Verses 10 through 12 give us a second application. It begins, he who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. This is stated like a maxim. There's no defense. There's no explanation. It's just this is self-evident, right? This is how if someone's faithful in the least, they're faithful also in much. You're like, yeah, 
because what changes there? Well, nothing, the amount of, of stuff someone's handling might change, but the person themselves is not changing. Uh, there was an interesting study done on the massive lottery winners. What they found was most of those people within a few years were back to living at the level of income they had before they won the lottery. What happened? Well, massive, the amount of money that they were handling changed, but apparently their skill in handling money didn't change at all. Acquiring this massive amount of money did not invest them in any, come with it any ability to manage the money. It might be a little easy for me to smirk at the foolish lottery winners, but the maxim is true for me too. If I'm waiting for my ship to come in before I become more generous, more focused on eternal priorities, probably not going to happen. This verse is a call to faithfulness now with what we have at the moment. It asks, where's your heart now with what's been entrusted to you at this moment, little or much? Where's your heart with what you have now? Verse 11, therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust the true riches to you? Hmm. I was tempted to add, it's like, my first thought when I read this was like, the, the, the ad we're going to see, if you're watching the game tonight, you're not watching the game tonight, they have run this ad ad infinitum. What's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? Well, according to the verse of verse, it would be unrighteous wealth. Uh, it's not true riches. It's not true riches. Maybe it would be helpful if we think of it as fake riches. Like, eh, we don't need to do that. It's certainly temporary wealth. You have it for only a time. If we've been self-indulgent, stockpiling, or spending it all on things we're going to leave here, if as sons of light we've not been faithful in the use of our wealth, who will entrust the true riches to us? The who there in this text would be God. God is the possessor of true riches, the things that are spiritual, the things that are eternal. How you use unrighteous wealth in this life will impact the true riches you are entrusted with both now and in eternity. A very sobering thought. You've not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth who will entrust the two true riches to you? The final shot in the second application is this, verse 12, and if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? This makes it very plain. Your money is not yours. Check that verse again. If you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's. This ties back to verse 11. Our unrighteous wealth is that which is another's. We are just like the manager in the parable in that he had nothing of his own to manage. He was working on the behalf of his master, and sadly, he was wasteful with another's resources. We, too, have nothing of our own. We are but managers 
of our Father's resources. You think, wait a minute, I, I show up for work every day, I work hard, I earn my money. I'm not, I'm not a beggar, I'm working for this money. Yes, but the thought I've been dwelling on more and more lately, we are creatures, we are created beings. Every breath we take, every beat of our heart is a gift from our maker. We may use diligence with what we have been given and build in abundance, but we are still stewards. This thought is beautifully expressed in David's prayer after receiving the offering for the temple, for building the temple. The enormous amount, quantity of resources were given by the sweat of many a man's brow. Listen to David's prayer. First Chronicles 29, 11 through 14. This would be a great if you're a note taker, I would write this down. This is a, you, you're, you probably know, this is an amazing prayer of depth and breadth. First Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth. Yours is the dominion, O Lord, and you exalt yourself as head over all, both riches and and honor come from you, and you rule over all, and your hand, and in your hand is power and might, and it lies in your hand to make great and strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. Here's the payoff, verse 14. But who am I, and who are my people? that we should be able to offer as generously as this. For all things come from you, and from your hand we have given you. From your hand we have given you. So the second point of application is clearly multi-pronged, but I will break it down to this. If one is faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, in the use of their money, you will be entrusted with greater things. The third and final point of application is verse 13. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. In the day in which this was delivered, it was a slave world, and this point would have been especially sharp. None of us know a slave. I'm going out on a limb there, but I'm thinking no one here knows someone who was bought, probably. We live in a world of employment. We might have multiple bosses. We might have multiple jobs, each with their own boss. But we need to set that aside for a moment. In a slave world, you are bought owned and obligated to one master. That is it. Jesus is illustrating for us the impossibility of serving God and wealth. It is like the slave world. You cannot have, you do not have two masters. You have one. I think you probably noticed this instruction 
in spite of some of my exhortation, is really quite positive. This is, this is about how to do the right thing with your wealth and the rewards for doing so. But on this last point, I would like to take us to a cross-reference that I think is a timely and appropriate warning, especially on this thought, we cannot serve God and wealth. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10 provides us a, 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 a sobering warning. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. And some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Whenever you read that verse, because it's been misquoted so many times, you have to point out it's not money in and of itself. Money, at least for us, for the sons of light, we can use this as a tool. But you have to be careful because it can become a taskmaster. It is the love of money that is a root of all sorts of evil. We have to guard ourselves from that. Well, that is the parable of the unrighteous steward. The uh, final thought, the final, let me just to summarize the final application. We want to, uh, if we want true, want real, lasting, eternal riches, we want to faithfully, prudently, skillfully use whatever wealth God has granted each of us to win the loss because they, those lost folks, who come to faith will be there to receive us into eternal dwellings. Let's close in prayer. Father, we um, thank you for the truth of your word and for the challenge it offers us here. We, um, we desperately want to use our wealth that you have granted us well. We want to use it as we want to use it as a tool. We want to use it in a manner which would honor you and please you. We want to use it to invest in the ministries that spread the gospel. Lord, I just ask that you grant each of us wisdom and discernment how we might better manage what we have and how we might use it with eternity in mind. And unlike the unrighteous steward, the part of him that we do not want to imitate, just scraping and conniving to create something for ourselves right now. Lord, save us from what we see with our eyes and grant us faith to pursue what you have promised in your word. These things we ask in Jesus' name, amen.